Bites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale January 27th, 2021. I'm Brian Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker! It is good times. This morning, I will tell you, we got an email from our adoption attorney that after almost a year, we finally have a date for the finalization of our adoption for Catherine. Wow. A year. Thank you, pandemic. But it's very exciting. Wow. I had no idea that things were still, you know, in motion like that. That's, I mean, look, it shouldn't surprise me given even the less than 0.0001% that I know about this whole process. I do know that it is an enormous pain in the old keister. Yes. So uh, it doesn't surprise me, but that's still wild. It is wild. Uh, I know some of our listeners have been in the same boat. So uh, it's wild. Uh, You pull through. Most importantly, I have an amazing daughter and it's all good news today. If anybody's just joining us on the show for the first time, we are going to run through all the brand new Marvel comics on sale this week. We have a bunch of them for you this week. We're going to give you our picks, and then we're going to hand out some awards we like to call the pulleys. Just completely arbitrary, random things that we like to award to some of the books out each week. We'll tell you what's hitting our subscription service, Marvel Unlimited, tell you some trades that are out, and then get into a reading club. We have a really fun one with editor Nick Lowe. We'll get into that a little bit later, but let's start things off with our picks. I'm going to go first with one of two picks I have, which is Marvel's number four. The idea behind this Marvel series is it's a curated book by amazing legendary artist Alex Ross, where he picks a bunch of artists. They come in, they do a story. It's an anthology book. Every issue has uh, about three stories by these artists that Alex has picked, as well as a wraparound story that Alex paints himself. If you had only one reason that you needed to come into the story, it's for brand new Alex Ross sequential art. And he opens it up with like, just massive galactic beings incapacitated and he closes it with like, if you've ever wanted to see Alex Ross draw Spider-Ham, here it is in this book. On top of that, you get maybe my favorite new alternate reality in the Marvel Universe. It's a story that is done by Daniel Cunha, who Tucker, you and I have been glowing about Daniel's work most recently in uh, his stuff with Black Panther. But Daniel does this story that essentially, without explicitly saying so, it's what if the deviants took over Earth? And it basically starts in the the late 19th century and the deviants, aka the like messed up, mostly evil creatures created by the Celestials that are sort of the flip of the coin to the Eternals, they take over. And it's kind of War of the Worlds, it's kind of Mad Max, it's kind of post-apocalypse, and it's incredible. You get all kinds of riffs on different Marvel superheroes. There's this like twist to it that when you get to the end, you're like, oh man, give me a whole series of just this. It's so freaking good. On top of that, we have a really amazing story that is done by Hilary Barta and uh, Doug Rice. And this one basically harkens back to the 1950s and 1960s Marvel monsters. Right before the Marvel age of superheroes breaks out, this tells a very funny tale of their last days. Then you get this beautiful 
Ben Grimm story. It's just some of the greatest art you're going to see in comics this week. Yeah, I totally agree. And hey, speaking of that, just that idea of a book that feels so at home, you know, where you're just like never surprised, but somehow always stunned at just how instantaneously you fall into the story, how welcome it is, how at home you feel, whatever might be happening in the actual issue itself. That's how I felt about my pick this week, which is Daredevil number 26. This is a King in Black tie-in, and it's called The Black Kitchen Part 1. It's written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Marco Coquetto and Daredevil mainstay Mike Hawthorne, inks by Adriana D. Benedetto, and colors by Marcio Meniz, with letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. And so why I say that is because I don't know if Chip had the King in Black plans built into his Daredevil run from day one, but damn it, I would believe you if you told me so, because (laughs) it just fits in so perfectly with the narrative that he's telling. It's really, really incredible. We started in prison. We started with Matt Murdock there, uh, and he's certainly at a low point. The ebbs and flows of his journey just alone have been so incredible, and that leaves out of it what has become one of my favorite kind of supporting casts. And, hey, spoiler alert, main casts now, uh, specifically when we're talking about the Daredevil mantle itself, the story has shifted, and Elektra is taking center stage in the cowl, and it just feels so right. When you add in all of the null of King and Black, when you add in symbiote dragons, when you add in all of that, it just makes perfect sense. It's also so daringly told, pun intended, I guess, daring in its empathy, I'll say. That's something that continues to strike me about the way that Chip writes Matt Murdock is that he's really empathetic. He gives him so much care and love and he allows him to be so vulnerable. It's really the mark of super mature and brilliant writing. And of course, when you have Kaketo and Hawthorne teaming up for the art, it's going to look beautiful. It's the perfect tie-in for me. Really, really great. Yeah. Speaking of King and Black tie-ins, we've got another in my second pick of the week, and it's Savage Avengers number 17, written by sweet bearded boy Jerry Duggan, art by Kev Walker, colors <laughs> by Java Tartaglia, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. We talk about a lot of artists all the time, I think the more and more Kev at this point in his career, anytime an issue comes out, reminds me that he's one of my favorite artists. He just comes in mm-hmm. and absolutely stomps on everything. There's just <laughs> something to his pages, his layout, his present, his figure work, and his acting is so good. I could take a million Kev Walkers and never be satiated. It's so freaking good. Look, we get Kev Walker drawing Conan the Barbarian in a bomber jacket. That's just this, like, beautiful little treat we get at the beginning of the book. But it's Conan and Deadpool teaming up in the mean streets of New York City, getting involved in some null shenanigans. There's symbiotes and dragons and all kinds of stuff. I want to give this a special pulley for having one of the most messed up Deadpool moments I've read in comics and I've read every (laughs) single other Jerry Duggan written Deadpool comic. And there are some messed up things in those. There's a, it's just so messed up. It's it's just so wild. I can't believe we did that in this book. Uh Uh, Yeah. 
This is not a book for kids. It's really good. It's really funny. It's Jerry writing Deadpool, Jerry writing Conan. It also introduces kind of a new character by the name of Nightflyer. There's an original Nightflyer character created by Jack Kirby. This is a same name, completely different character. Uh, but this dude is just like cool. He has a jetpack. He hangs out with Conan and Deadpool in this issue. I want to see more of him. It's fun because it ties into all the other stuff that we've seen in Savage Avengers with the story of these last you know year and a half. And it ties into Null, but it's like, if this is somebody's first issue of Savage Avengers, you could pick this up and just be fully caught up and ready to go. It's rad as hell. So, so good. All right. That's what we have for our picks this week. Uh, And now jumping into our pulleys this week, doling out some pulleys. We're starting with Amazing Spider-Man number 58. We're starting a new chapter here. This is Negative Space Part 1. And I got to tell you, I'm excited about it. I am a big Mr. Negative fan. And I think more than anything, Mr. Negative has a different connotation. He's a different kind of villain than what we've been used to for a while in this series. So to mix it up that way is super fun. I lost my gourd reading this issue because of Marcelo Ferrero's pencils. You open up page one and there is this kind of vertical framed image of Spidey kind of in recovery in the middle of a fight. He's kind of nursing a wound on his arm. It's kind of an abstract look because it looks like he's in a spotlight, even though he's not literally. And you're just like, oh yeah, I know what I'm in for now. It's Marcelo doing Spider-Man and it is just gorgeous. I could talk about this for much longer. I will stop myself now though. What a beautiful issue. Yeah. Uh, We've got another beautiful issue in Captain Marvel number 25. This one I want to give two pulleys to. One for Unsettling Origin of the Week, which goes to Ove, the main antagonist who's shown up in this alternate reality tale. And then I want to give a pulley for Glow Ups of the Week to Carol, as well as to Astrid Thor's daughter, who is the daughter of Thor. She rules in this story. It's one of those issues where you feel so bad for all our heroes. And then by the end, it's like the music kicks in and we're left with this amazing moment where, you know, next issue is just going to be awesome. Great series. Love this storyline. I hope we get like a million more in this reality. Now moving over to Conan, the Barbarian, number 18. This one is a little bit of a kind of genre crossover. It's a Conan book, yes. It's a sword and shield book, yes. But it's also a samurai book. This is a samurai issue with so much influence in that way. And I love that, as you can imagine. This might get my pulley for some of the best action sequences of the week. It is absolutely stunning artwork by artist Luca Pizzari, who uh, is uh, relatively new to me in terms of the pages of Conan the Barbarian. And I'm just so, so into it. Page one, boom, you get these splashes of these just wild, grotesque images as you are taken through this story. Uh, I think Jim Zub is so light on his feet with this book, and uh, it ends up being a wild, wild tale uh, and something different for Conan, which is always fun, always very much welcome, and it's a really cool entry. Yeah. 
All right, let's move over to Deadpool number 10, which is another King in Black tie-in issue. Sadly, this is the final issue of this run of Deadpool. Kelly Thompson has done some really cool stuff with bringing Deadpool, making him King of the Monsters on Monster Island, aka Staten Island. I'm going to give uh, a pulley to it for casting segment of the week, which is one of my favorite Kelly Thompson things that she does as a writer. She scripts in these sequences where she brings in characters and they do like sort of casting slash interviews for whatever it is. We've seen it in West Coast Avengers. We see it here. And I think it's terrific. It's really funny. Gerardo does some great work here. The book's nasty because it is a King and Black tie-in. And I'm also going to give it a pulley for one of my nullifications of the week. If you know who's really tight with Deadpool these days, then you know they might get nullified. And that's going to be real freaky weird. I will not say anything more <laughs> for fear of spoilers. But I'll leave it at that. Next up, we got... Excalibur number 17. My pulley might get sent out to one scene in particular here between the old Warren Worthington III and Betsy, which is a great one. It's another one of those scenes where you're sitting in Teeny Howard's hand, just so willing to go anywhere that she takes you. Marcus Toe is the artist on here, and I say that because Marcus... It has a little bit of an, a little bit of a, a shout out to my favorite soccer team in here. Yeah, unusual take here. There's a framed <laughs> what I see is a, a uh, Arsenal Football Club soccer jersey in the background of one of these pages. Could not that is such a Venn diagram of me. I could not uh, help but mention it. Of course, we get all the great Excalibur drama and goodness in this issue. And in the aftermath of Ten of Swords, we kind of settled down for a sec, took stock again, got to know the team in the aftermath of such a huge event. And now we're starting to ramp up the pace again. And uh, I think we're going to be going full steam ahead as we go into the next issue from there. We've got Fantastic Four number 28. It is the final part of this big saga where some bad business comes back to haunt the FF. But the thing I really want to shout out is the pulley I'm going to give for artistic team-up of the week to artist R.B. Silva and colorist Jesus Arbutov. Holy moly. There were points in this I was just like gobsmacked by how gorgeous this book is. I didn't know that I wanted R.B. Silva to draw Fantastic Four and Jesus to color it so much until now I see it. It's tremendous. If for no other reason to see how they do Silver Surfer in here and how gorgeous that looks. Yeah. Speaking of the Fantastic Four, we have uh, an old FF buddy, uh, Namor the Submariner. He stars in King and Black, Namor, Number three, look, there are certain places in the Marvel Universe that I just love to visit, and it's like a universe inside a universe, and one of those, of course, is Atlantis. When we get to go into that place and just be surrounded by all of the complexities that those locales have within them, it's so much fun, and you know where you are in terms of the larger story, but you have so much else to deal with in the present tense. I think when it comes to this story and obviously all the madness going on in King and Black, we also have so much going on in Namor's circle specifically. All of the palace intrigue, all of the politics, all of the personal vengeance stories and gripes and issues and drama, all of that stuff, it's worthy of a book all on its own. So when we get that tied in with the great action and it's brought to you, of course, by someone who I would put my money on knowing Namor better than maybe almost anyone else on planet 
planet Earth, Kurt Busiek, it's, of course, going to be an awesome tale. And uh, that's definitely what we get to hear. Heck yeah. All right, let's move over to Krakoa for New Mutants number 15. Friend of the show, Vita Ayala. You can tell they're having so much fun writing this book. Something that I love that I notice when I read something that Vita writes or Leah Williams writes or Matt Rosenberg writes, it's like this attention and love to the stories that have come in the last like 10 years and like the building of characters and how they have felt the same way that we as fans feel about them. And so we like, they, they write them in, they find cool things for them to do, whether it's Scout, AKA Gabby, you know, the sister of Laura and, and, you know, the, the whole part of that story and, and Dokken in here or what's going on with Wolfsbane and Wolfsbane's child and, and how distraught she is about that. There's just so many cool bits and pieces in here that if you are someone who's been reading Marvel comics religiously, you're just going to be like, man, this is chock full of great stuff. My pulley for it is going to be the pulley for ain't no party like a Krakoa party because a Krakoa party is full of tears and tiki drinks. <laughs> Uh, ain't it the truth? Uh, all right, next up we got Shang-Chi number five. This is the conclusion of this limited series, but it is also a new beginning. And if you pick it up and read it, you'll know what I mean. I just love this kind of redefining work in a, in a way by Gene Lenyang and G.K. Ron, the writer and artist duo that have worked so hard on this book. And it's really showed up on the pages. My plea, though, goes to... A character that I just am so into, Sister Hammer. One of the coolest names out there. I am so on board right from the start. And then you have this really fascinating connection and relationship that evolves and twists and turns in totally unexpected ways throughout this uh, issue in particular. If you're looking for a great Shang-Chi story, five issues in and out, I highly recommend this one because you have so many different areas of the character's story to focus in on and somehow they do it all, somehow they pull it all off. All right, and I'm taking the next one. I'm taking the reins, and I'm taking us to a galaxy far, far away with Star Wars Bounty Hunters number nine. You get an issue like this where you have wild action, you have space action, you have personal one-on-one hand-to-head combat the same way you have cosmic space fighter uh, action at the same time. There are some great quiet moments in here, and that's something that continues to surprise me about this series is they find that time. It's something that's so important, particularly in Star Wars, which is just built upon this foundation of the kind of 1930s serial, something that is just grabbing you by the scruff of the neck and taking you through a story with little to no time to stop and think. And that's kind of the point. But to choose their moments like uh, this creative team does, to give you that heart, to give you that moment of pathos, to allow you into the character's heart and soul is really important and it adds to the rest of the story and the rest of the action in such a big way. I also want to give a special shout out to the colors of this issue, which I think are really particularly gorgeous. So uh, another great entry into Bounty Hunters. Yeah. Speaking of colors, we got beautiful colors in Strange Academy number seven. Of course, it's going to be a beautiful book rendered wonderfully by Imberto Ramos and Edgar Delgado, one of the great artist colorist teams that we have. This one very like 
watercolor feeling vibes throughout the issue. I'm going to give it, though, my pulley for double page spread of the week as Doctor Strange makes a trip to Hogoth. Hogoth being the giant tiger-looking god. Man, Umberto and Edgar just do this double page spread, and it just feels so massive and cool. It ends up being like this four or five page sequence that it's freaking great. So good. Oh, yeah. All right. Next up, we go over to Werewolf by Night, number four. This made me think of Clay Cortez, Weapon H, a character that we saw in the Weapon H book in Hulk Vereens as well. There is a kind of kinship there tonally with this series so far that I'm really into, as well as just playing with this area of human and monster and the line that divides those two things, how blurry that can be at times. It's really, really interesting. And I think it takes a lot to not just conceive of a story that can capture that, but to have the art that pulls it off uh, and really allows you into the character's perspectives like this does. It's a, a really, really interesting feat. And I think when it comes to this kind of cryptozoological end of Marvel Comics, this corner of the universe, that's exactly the area you want to explore. And I think this creative team is doing it with a plum. Yes. All right. We're almost through the new books, but I've got one for you that's so good. It's Wolverine number nine. I'm going to give my pulley to Adam Kubert, Layout Master. I've always been a fan of Adam. He's a friend, but he's one of the greatest living artist we have at Marvel. He does this thing in this issue where he has one major image as sort of like this background, and then he cuts it up into different panels. And then in some of the panels, he breaks up the image with smaller sequential bits that sort of keep the flow going. And he does it a couple times in here to great effect, Wolverine on a table or Sabretooth or some other characters. And it's really good. It's really well like paced. It's smart. He also takes a spread and he turns it vertical He's like, I don't care how you want to read comics. I'm going to show you how to read this comic, and you're going to flip it on its side, and you're going to get this beautiful vertical sequence that is chock full of little details that he throws in there. Uh, there's another big page where we're at an auction, and we see all these different items that are up for sale, and it is cool and creepy. It's weird. He's got amazing action, as always. This is all about Wolverine going after one of his oldest friends, Maverick, who is a 90s character that I have a deep affinity for. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, so much good stuff. And we're wrapping it up this week uh, with X-Men number 17. There's a quote in here that I just love. I think it's so classic X-Men. There's a little bit of dialogue before it, but uh, Cyclops ends up saying, frankly, we're in a saving the day kind of mood. And then you go to the credits page and in Tom Muller's text, it just says, you heard them, let's get onto the story. And you go and boom, there they are. I gotta say, my pulley for this one goes out to Brett Booth, who is bringing the kind of 90s X-Men vibes to this in such a great way. Uh, I know that you, Ryan, were excited about a particular moment involving old Scotty, uh, and, which is super, super fun, I gotta say. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna give my pulley uh, for this book to uh, the pulley is Cyclops getting knocked the bleep out moment of the week. I just <laughs> loved it to bits. Even you get that great Cyclops, you know, line early later on, just watch him go and get knocked down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> chef's kiss. That's what we have now for individual issues on sale this week. And now moving over to print collections, we got a bunch of 
on offer this week, some amazing X-Men stuff. But I got to maybe give my particular shout out to Star Wars Dr. Aphra. There's a collection there, Volume 1, Fortune and Fate. It's a, a new series that I've just been such a huge fan of. I think Alyssa Wong, past guest of Marvel's Pull List, is just so in tune with that character and hits the ground running in such a fun way. Heck yeah. Over on Marvel Unlimited, a bunch of new issues hit the service this week. I wanted to point out Werewolf by Night number one. If you want to jump in and see what that book's all about, it is now on Marvel Unlimited. We've got a couple of Ten of Swords tie-ins, a couple of series finales, and so much more. You can get the full list of all these books on Marvel.com, and you can subscribe to Marvel Unlimited at Marvel.com slash Unlimited, uh, which you should do because there's a bunch of books we're going to tell you to read for our reading club this week. Our guest is Mr. Nick Lowe, Editor Supreme. He had a, an interesting reading club entry with us this week because he's not just picking one storyline or one issue. He's chosen several issues that are perfect for kids, particularly for parents with kids that you can read with them, that they'll enjoy, that you'll probably enjoy as well. Great conversation, great little bit of a different pace for our regular reading club. So let's talk to Mr. Nick Lowe right now. All right, Tucker, it is time to bring in one of my favorite guests for the show, but also one of my favorite people at Marvel. It is editor, wonderful man, father, and probably sometimes superhero, Nick Lowe. Hey, Tucker, Ryan. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> it is so good to see you guys. It has you been too. so long. Gosh, I'm trying to remember the last, we recorded one of these, was it back in like May? Probably. You know what we should do? We should set up a quarterly just get together on the show to talk about various different comics. Yeah. yeah. I'm at I'm full support and I just love to see you guys and to talk and say, I don't know when this is going to air, but as we're recording, it is Ryan's birthday. Mm. Ryan, I am glad that you were born. I'm glad that you are in this world. I'm glad that you've been at Marvel forever like me. And happy birthday, buddy. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate it. It's also, as we call this, David Bogart's birthday. And John Cirilli's birthday. John Cirilli's birthday, exactly. Uh, yesterday was Joe Quesada's birthday. Yep. I wow. think tomorrow's Darren Shan's birthday. <laughs> wow. Um, Tom Brevoort's birthday's coming up within the next week as well. <laughs> like, it's January is crazy. Yeah, Capricorn's running the world, yo. Here we are. <laughs> Woo, Zodiac. Someone's asking me like what my kids' signs were. And I was like, I, I mean, I know my sign. And <laughs> two of my kids are within like a, two weeks of my birthday. So that's the only way I know that they're Libra as well. But my, my son who was born in April, who knows? The, the, I know more about the Zodiac that uh, were our villains for about a year of Amazing Spider-Man than I do about the signs of the Zodiac in the world that we live in that isn't a comic book. It's priorities. <laughs> it's good. You're fine. <laughs> um, now, speaking about your children, that's kind of how we got to this episode. I believe one of our amazing producers, MR, they came up with this idea, maybe even talking to you, you'll explain it to us in a second, about how much your reading comics to your children these days and thought, well, that would be a great way to do a different kind of reading club episode where we'd have you pick a couple of comics that you think are perfect for parents to read to children that would mean something to everyone involved and then get into it. Um, does that about sum it up? What, how did all this come about? Yep. MR reached out to me and said, this is something you guys were thinking about talking to. I was like, I would love to talk about it because my kids and I are on Marvel Unlimited almost every single night. We jump around to all kinds of stuff, but we go back to certain of their favorites. We've read through several whole series 
I mean, they love comics and I obviously love comics, but Marvel Unlimited has been such a great tool because we can jump around like crazy people. Uh, but it's such a joy and getting to see what they react to. It is, I mean, my kids are precocious and they love to read, but comics has, I think, pushed them even further because the way we do it, we all kind of pick parts in it. And so my daughter, uh, Lois, is seven years old. My son, George, is five. And my son, Harry, is two. And so the two older ones read. And especially George kind of learned to read as we were doing these. And Lois has been reading for a couple of years now. But like, so when we're reading, we're going to talk about Moon Girl, Devil Dinosaur. For example, Lois would often be Lunella when she was Moon Girl. And then George would be Devil Dinosaur, which is mostly Ruse and uh, and so, but the, like different comics, we all take different parts and, and I read most of them just because it, it's, it's faster and that sort of thing too. But it is such a joy to read these comics with them and to see what they take out of it. And for me to read some of the stuff, like I've read a bunch that we read already, but there's some that I haven't that I'd only like maybe read the first arc of and then fell off it or got too busy or crazy, but it's just been a joy. And I highly recommend it to other comic nerd parents out there. <laughs> That's such a cool thing. You know, I hadn't thought about this until we started talking about just the kind of cross-pollination. And it's something if you're incredibly lucky to be able to work in a field that you're super passionate about, the cross-pollination between like your professional life and your personal life or your family life and being able to take something that not only you're super passionate about, something that you know, you've been doing all day and then, you know, at nighttime comes, have dinner or whatever and read a few comics. And then what I was wondering is, do you ever find that like reading comics with your children actually as an editor, as a creative force in these books, gives you a refreshed perspective or a new perspective on these things, keeps you in a certain reader's mindset or something like that? Do you ever find that the cross-pollination can go both ways in that way? Oh, big time. Like you said, we are lucky people. You know, those of us being on this call, like we have jobs that we love that we're passionate about. I get to make comic books for a living and I love it so much. But like you said, we'll be reading and the things that keep my kids interest it's not everything, you know, and we'll talk about some of that as we go through the, like this list, but that's one thing that has been like a, a big eye opener to me as to like, what are the things that keep their interest? And obviously not every comic is built for my seven, five and two. Now, will I still read comics that are inappropriate for them? Yes, we do all the time. <laughs> uh, and we'll get into that later, but even for the ones that are more appropriate, like, and it's sometimes it's an issue by issue thing. And, and, and we could talk about that a little bit, but it's like, oh, okay. Cause I also love to make comics that uh, I like to make all kinds of comics. Like one of the best things about working for Marvel and for Marvel in the time I've been here, Marvel's always been incredible, but I feel like we have a wider range of stuff than Marvel has maybe ever had mm-hmm. in the time that, that I've been here. And I can't take credit for that. That's been between like Joe Quesada and Axel Alonso and CB Sobolski who are leading the charge with these varied tastes and stuff like that. But, you know, I made like one of the comics we're going to talk about, Spidey, is one that I edited. And I always like to make comics for, for kids as well as comics for adults, both like, you know, between like Max and all that kind of stuff. I love to make everything. But this has helped me both for comics for everybody and for comics for kids think like, okay, this is what's keeping their interest. And like as much as you might love this scene where these people are talking for a while, like it's uh, it's not 
what they're into as much. And it's, they're having a harder time, like, you know, staying focused on it and enjoying it. Um, and then there's also like crazy ideas that uh, I'll end up sharing on our like editorial Slack channel, like where at one point, George, my son was like, Captain America's shield should be pink. <laughs> so I like, threw it out there to Tom Brevoort, like, you know, who knows, maybe we'll see it one day. But like, it's just like, hey, why not? You know, for fun, you know, but like, they're, they they just like, it's so, it's just so fun to see where their their minds go too. You know, when you, you were talking about, you know, the inappropriate stuff, I, I think about how the books that I was reading when I was a kid and how I got into comics. And I always, you know, one of the things that I've, I've told people is I remember reading Punisher War Journal Issues like six and seven, the Karl Potts, Jim Lee stuff, where yeah. Wolverine crosses over into those Punisher issues when they were coming out. So I was like six or seven. I remember reading that as a child, and I'm fine. Look at where I am now. It all worked <laughs> out. I didn't For have real. this cool relationship with the comics that you do with your children. I read comics just being a fan. It wasn't my mom giving them to me or reading them from some other person. I don't know how I ended up getting them, but I think there's something cool about it as a kid when you do get your hands on something that isn't quite directed for you. And I think that mm-hmm. sparks something, but it's also, that's probably a very sticky situation when if you as a parent have to try to explain stuff to them. Well, like most things, you kind of let the kids steer. They know what they want and they know what they like. And of course, I mean, I'm not going to read to them Punisher Max, which is like, you know, my favorite and maybe the best comic that Marvel has ever produced. It's not appropriate for my seven or five year old. But like, again, like Star Wars, we've read from the Jason Aaron, John Cassidy, number one, through almost the end of Kieran Gillen and Salvador La Roca's run. And not every five and seven year old is going to be into this and will it be appropriate to them. But we'll try out a movie and sometimes like if they start getting scared, like, you know, when it's too much for your kid, you know, and we're not going to be talking about the much about the ones that push those boundaries. We'll more yeah. be talking about the ones that like you're generally parents, you're safe to look at these depending on what the, your, your kid's age is. It's at least a starting point. And then you can let them drive. And as long as you're there to help and guide them, you know, for the most part, if it's generally, if it's on Marvel unlimited, it might not be safe for everybody, but it's safe for most kids who are going to find it. And, you know, mm-hmm. but you got to watch because it's kind of like the movies. Not all the movies are for every age. Parents, you know your kids. And I think it was like Neil Gaiman, like, let the kid drive. Like, you know, the kids know what they want to read and what they can handle. And as long as you're paying attention and as long as you're keeping an eye, which if you're all doing this and you're you're all there anyway. And let them ask the questions. Let them ask. Because, like, there's stuff that they'll notice. There's stuff that we read that I'm like, I don't know if they're ready for this. And either they read it and they're like, this is no big deal. Or they don't understand it and it doesn't bother them and they don't really know what's going, but the stuff they do get, they love. So I hope that's right. I don't know. <laughs> I trust your opinion more than everybody's, Nick. So let's <laughs> Thanks, dig Doug. into the books. I want to I list for any parents who are out there who are listening, who have this great platform to leap off of. We have six books, Nick, that you selected. I'll list them now and then we'll start digging into them one by one. We have Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur number one. Uh, that's from 2015. We have Spidey number one, which is also from 2015. We have uh, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl number one from that same year. We have Captain America number four. 444. That's from the mid-90s. We have Amazing Fantasy number 15, of course, the origin of Peter Parker himself. And then we have Amazing Spider-Man number one from 1963. Nick, where do you want to start? I want to start with Moon Girl. Nice. Because this was the one 
that I think captured my kids maybe the most. I mean, they'd read a couple print versions of some of the others we'll talk about, but as far as on Marvel Unlimited, this is the one that they would ask for every night. We read it from number one until the very end of this volume, and it is so fun, and the characters are just terrific. It came out in 2015. I remember when Mark Panisha started pushing to make this comic. At the time, I was managing most of the Inhumans books, and this is one that we were trying to see what we could make work with Inhumans. And Mark had put this together, and I was a little skeptical, to be completely honest, but Mark believed in it so much. And Emily Shaw, who worked with him on that, who is also a terrific editor, uh, who has moved on, uh, she went to business school and, and is doing all kinds of amazing stuff now. Mark Panisci is still at Marvel, editing now the Star Wars books. But I wasn't sure if it was going to work or not because, like, it was a kind of a risky move. Like, you know, you take Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur, and he's like, "But I'm going to put in the present and make it Moon Girl." And he hired Brandon Montclair and Amy Reader, who also did the covers for most of the series. Certainly, the first, you know, maybe twenty issues or something like that. We can get into there. And artist Natasha Bustos, who is incredible, and I've known since she was an aspiring artist. She is an amazing artist, an amazing storyteller. And Amy and Brandon also did just such a terrific job. Lunella, so she is one of the smartest people in the Marvel Universe. Uh, and I think that number changes. Like, I think she's third smartest, but by the end of this, you know, she's the smartest person in the Marvel Universe. It's proven in the pages of the series, and it is rightfully so because she's incredible. And one of the neatest things I think they did with this series and about this series is that what makes her kind of Marvel is that she's not perfect. She is brilliant. And she means very well. But to be honest, she's kind of a jerk. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I love it. Like, that is so Marvel to me. Because, I mean, let's be honest. Peter Parker's kind of a jerk, especially before he learns his lesson. And we'll get to that more, too. People can be jerks, even people you love. And Lunella is. And then you meet Devil Dinosaur, who is the greatest, a giant red dinosaur. So this brilliant girl in Manhattan, Lower East Side, She's trying to avoid being near the Terrigen Mist because she's afraid of what it'll do to her. And she finds this giant Tyrannosaurus Rex and their friendship is what this whole series is about. But it is so fun. My kids loved it. They love Lunella. They love Devil Dinosaur. You get to go inside a classroom that feels like a real classroom. You have a teacher who's trying her best, who Lunella gives a hard time to, who her <laughs> fellow students are pains in the butt sometimes, but they're mostly, they just live their own lives. Lunell's parents are great. They mean well, but they don't really understand her. You jump around in time in this book. You go to prehistoric times where Devil Dinosaur comes from. You come to the present day New York City. You end up going to the future. You go to space. You go through this series. You go everywhere. And my kids were so into it. They wanted to read it every night. Uh, and they were so sad when we got to the end. But these writers and artists and editors did such an amazing job with this. And I think your kids, uh, if they're anything like my kids, will love this book too. I also want to give a shout out to colorist Tamara Bonvillain because you mentioned reading this on Marvel Unlimited. So reading it digitally and the colors on a nice screen just explode off the page, especially the opening. It's a really beautiful comic on a number of levels. And I can see exactly why a kid would just glom onto it instantly. Yep. Tamara is one of the best in the business. And Travis Lanham, who letters it, does a great job. And this is not an easy book to letter. Yeah. All right. So you have five comics. Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur number one was the first one. Where do you want to go next? Let's go to Squirrel Girl. 
So Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, the first number one that was released yes. in 2015 <laughs> because the book ran eight issues, then stopped, and then restarted at number one again afterwards. Uh, but this is the first, first one. Yep. So this is the very first Squirrel Girl series, and that's because Secret War happened in the middle of it. And so that pretty much stopped everything in its tracks in the Marvel Universe. So Squirrel Girl, this is my daughter's current favorite comic that we read. And she asked for it every single one. My son also likes it, but this is one that is like a case in point of this one is for a slightly older audience than my five-year-old son. It's even pushing it with my daughter Lois, who's seven, but she loves it regardless. So it is about Doreen Green, who is Squirrel Girl, goes off to college. And what does she do? She eats nuts and she kicks butts. She's a plucky hero. She's the greatest. She's so full of positive energy and fun and just wants to help everyone if she can. And it is such a joy to go along with her adventures. The thing about this thing that Lois loves, but George isn't as into, like, it's very dense. And that's why, like, that's partially why it is more for slightly older kids. Like, I would say, if I had to guess, like, probably eight or nine-year-olds to teenagers especially would be where this one is, is particularly at. And Rico Renzi is incredible colorist. It is such a delight. It's so fun. In this series, she starts her freshman year of college. She meets Nancy Whitehead, her roommate, who is pretty much, as far as I'm concerned, the star of this book. Uh, <laughs> if you ask my kids, however, Tippy Toe is the star yeah. of this book. Tippy Toe is her true <laughs> best friend. Uh, Tippy Toe is a squirrel. Unless there's scenes where it's just Tippy Toe and Squirrel Girl, the only things you hear out of Tippy Toe are like, chick, chick, like, chick, 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 chick. And my kids fight. They literally fight to be the one to read <laughs> Tippy Toe each and every night. It is so funny. It's so fun. This comic alone is worth your full Marvel Unlimited subscription because like the amount of heart and work that goes into making every issue of the unbeatable squirrel girl, like you can spend some time on it. But uh, this book is so great. They put her up against Galactus in this first series, actually in the second issue, she goes up against Dr. Doom, against Galactus, and she solves things like only Squirrel Girl can. And it is such a special comic. And another one, again, that when I saw Tom Brevoort and Will Moss putting this up to be a new series, I was shocked that it got approved because for a long time, like this sort of thing may not have gotten approved. And I'm so glad it did because it's been so incredible to see this book become the phenomenon that it is. I hadn't read this issue in years. It is so fully formed and it's the perfect first issue to a series uh, that you could ask for. It's just so good. It is dense, but it's funny. It moves quickly. It establishes so much so easily and it leaves you wanting more right up to the last page. Yep. And these are masters at work. Ryan and Erica as the, the creative leaders of this team and especially with their partner in crime, Will Moss, and Jake Thomas, who worked on this, but then Sarah Brunstad and a couple of assistant editors along the way. Like, what perfect partners in crime. Like, Will Moss is my, like, editorial hero. And actually, I almost hired him years before he came to work at Marvel. It was down to two Wills, and I hired a different Will. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I still stand behind it. Will Panzo is a, was a great assistant editor and is a great person. But uh, but part of me also kicks like like Will could have been at Marvel a little earlier too, which would have been awesome. I wish I could have hired them both. Anyway, but this book, Ryan and Erica are incredible and they did such an amazing job with this issue and with this series. And if you have kids, you know, that are precocious and brilliant, they are going to love this book because it doesn't talk down to anybody. It talks up to everybody. Like I'm not nearly smart enough to get everything that they do in this book. 
I mean, that's, and it's Stanley's legacy in a lot of ways. Like, you know, so often people would ask Stan, like, you know, like, how do you write for kids? And he's like, I don't, I just write. Kids are smarter than you ever give them credit for. And I know I learned so much about reading and so much vocabulary, reading comics. And, and I still put that at Stan Lee's feet and Ryan and Erica pick up such a part of his. And, and this, uh, you know, I mean, one of the co-creators of this character, Steve Ditko, Steve's fingerprints are all over this too. Like this feels akin to those first 30 issues of Spider-Man to me of, of from Amazing Fantasy 15 through Amazing 30 when Steve was still working on there. Like this has so much of Ditko DNA in it too. And like, you know, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and all that kind of stuff. But I love it and they love it. I have so many thoughts on, on these different things from Will Moss through to the, the benchmark <laughs> that early Spidey set and still is such uh, it's it's such a touchstone to this very day of like when you're launching a new character, can you somehow capture that magic? In a lot of ways, for me, at least, that defines all of Marvel Comics. Across of all of these issues, Nick, that you picked, some of them, I think, maybe at least in their origins, in their issue number ones, things like that, maybe angled a little bit more towards younger readers. But I can make a case easily for each of these to be as much fun, whether you're seven years old or whether you're 27 or whether you're 57. I really, really firmly believe that. And this is definitely one of them that fits that bill. This is a, a book and a character that I just love diving into no matter what. This is when it gets closest to like the epitome of Marvel comics of a writer and an artist bringing out the best in each other and bring out the best in a character with feet of clay who is imperfect and wonderful. Same thing with Moon Girl. Like you're, I think you're hitting the nail on the head uh, as well, Tucker. Like this is great for anyone of, of any ages and it's magic. And I think it's so like, you know, reading that, like, and then, you know, looking at Amazing Fantasy 15, which should we segue over to that too? Yeah, like, let's you know, do. We're there. Like this is one that my kids and I read recently. Like I said, we'd read some Spidey before and we'll get to, maybe we'll do that after we talk about Amazing Fantasy and Amazing Spider-Man number one. And I've read this comic so many times but every time i read it i'm gobsmacked by how incredible it is how fun it is how intense it is and in a lot of ways how mature it is every time i find something new to love in amazing fantasy 15 so stanley steve ditko this is spider-man's first appearance we could do a whole episode about the creation of spider-man and the crazy rocky road that led to amazing fantasy 15 but for now like my kids also were thoroughly engaged as we were reading this. And this probably, like, kind of like Squirrel Girl, is probably on the upper edge of what they're interested in. And we've read now up through, like, Amazing Spider-Man, I think it's four or five that we left off on most recently. But this comic is so good. And, again, Peter Parker is a sweet kid. He's also, like, you know, in these first, especially Amazing Fantasy and the rest, he's, he, he gets mad and he gets angry and he's selfish and... Their first instinct, both for himself and for his family, when he gets these powers is like, what can I do to make money with these powers? And, you know, again, like the key parts of his origin, he lets a robber go. I think I'm going to try to read this with my kids like every year, because that's a lesson that I, that I have to kind of reteach re myself every so often. Like you can't just let stuff go like that. Like that's the, that's what uncle Ben needs to teach all of us. You know, we all have great power. We all have great responsibility. But that walloped my kids when we read that part about the robber and he lets him go and what it does to Uncle Ben. And it's intense, but it's so incredible and beautiful and deep and heavy. One of the things that's interesting to me about this is also Spider-Man's first appearance is just 11 pages, right? It's yeah. it's just, you get a lot happening yeah. 
to establish who he is. The time frame in these 11 pages is pretty long, too. It's from yep. – you know, before he gets his powers, he's being bullied. You get a bunch of setup to, you know, going through things, getting the powers, Uncle Ben stuff, uh, or, or even to becoming the, you know, quote unquote celebrity, Uncle Ben stuff. Like all of this happens in this thing. And there's also another 14, 15 other pages of story in this amazing fantasy issue that, like, you finish this Spidey story and you're like, that's it. It's kind of wild. And how did your kids react to the first time that you read this together? They had heard versions of the story before you know in the spidey book we'll talk about there we do kind of a one-page version of this as well it hit them like a ton of bricks they didn't quite get the depth of it yet because i don't think they're quite ready to get the depth of it yet like they they understood parts of it but it walloped them and they loved the art and they thought it was so cool and even just seeing like steve ditko figure spider-man out as he went through this, because you know, the, I'll tell you, like, unlike so many things you see these days, you know, on TV or in movies and stuff like that, Stan and Steve did not spend years developing this character. You could see Steve draw Spider-Man differently from panel to panel and page to page a little bit here. Like, I mean, like at the culmination when he's caught the burglar, like when he's holding him by his, his shirt, he's got pupils in his lenses, and like, was that a mistake? Was that like, you know, who? It's it's. I mean, and when you get into Amazing Spider-Man, like I, I, we'll, we'll get into that too in a second, but it's just brilliant and it's wonderful and it is as powerful reading it now as I trusted it was then as the first time I read it for sure. And just incredible. Um, before we get to Spidey, one of the things I wanted to, to ask about, Nick, is, you know, your kids are growing up now and something I think about because my daughter, she's 15 months old and, and the way she's going to process media and art and culture and all this stuff, you know, Amazing Fantasy 15, Amazing Spidey number one are, you know, almost 60 years old. How did your kids react or did they react to the art and the style, just like visually how different they were than pretty much all the other books that we're talking about? You know, I, I know Cap is at this point, you know, that, that book's 25 years old, but it's still much more modern looking. And then the others, they, they're so recent. What, was there anything about that from your kids? Honestly, no, hmm, uh, not cool. yet, at least. Uh, I mean, I think maybe it's because a lot of their intro to comics are things like squirrel girl and moon girl which i mean a lot of people will don't love you know erica's work or uh natasha's work like they think like this is what superhero comics should look like but then you read amazing fantasy 15 and amazing spider-man 1 through 30 and like erica and natasha are their stuff is a lot like steve ditko's stuff you know i was too used to the modern stuff it took me a while to, to get to love them but like steve ditko and Jack Kirby are the guiding stars. And their styles, while they might have some similarities, they are very different. Jack Kirby draws beefy, powerful-looking people. Steve Ditko draws, like, spindly, weird-looking people. And they're so different, but they're both Marvel comics. But my kids love this Ditko stuff. Uh, if anything, that's harder for them. It's the It stands writing style. And some of the pop culture stuff that he'll bring up or, like, the hip talk of Peter Parker and his friends at that time... Um, cause Stan was very of his time on purpose. You know what I mean? Like that was a, like, just like Marvel comics today are like very much of their time. Like that, that's one thing that we, we dig in on. That's the thing they, like they, they, at least my five and seven year old, they are liking this Spider-Man classic one, but I think it's almost too many words and a little bit too dense. That's why I think they like Spidey a little bit better. It's kind of more made for them. Whereas this it was made for teenagers or like preteens, like uh, when Stan and Steve and them were making like, that was their 
target audience. When you say Spidey more made for them, I also, though, think that Spidey is kind of the quintessential perfect example of an all-ages book. And, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and I think I love Spidey. It is such a perfect book that I think you can give to anyone of any age, more or less, and they can find something to love about this comic book. It is one of my proudest editorial moments is doing this book. I will say one thing. All ages comics don't always do great in the comic book store, comic book market. Not a lot of people buy them. We still make them even when they don't because we believe that we should. We we always make them. Right now we work with IDW to make a lot of them, but they never are all that profitable, which is like a, a weird, sad truth of it. However, this is one that we never said was all ages publicly, and that was like a key thing that Robbie and Nick Bradshaw and I aimed to do out of the gate was like, we want this to be truly for all ages, but if we say all ages, then people will say it's just for kids. But this book is such a joy and just a few creators being brilliant, telling stories about the greatest fictional character ever created. Uh, Dr. Octopus, yes, he's... (laughs) (laughs) He's up there, man, he's up there. Uh, But Spider-Man is the greatest and Robbie and Nick did such an amazing, amazing job with this book. We try to keep it simple. We try to keep it so everyone would enjoy it. We try to update it in some ways and to take some chances and and to make people look a little different than they looked in the classic one because this is a new telling and, 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 and you can make some changes. But I'm so proud of this book. I mean, just for Nick Bradshaw's art alone, you should spend some time on this because Nick Bradshaw is a pure cartoonist and he does such amazing work and he does not spare a single detail. We released an oversized print collection or at least yeah, a treasury print, edition. Yeah, treasury yep. edition of one or more of these issues, which is you know exactly what you're talking about, Nick. Listener, go search that out, the treasury edition, to really see this art up close and big. All right, Nick, we have one more book to talk about. And I'll I'll be honest, when I saw the list, that this was the one that was a surprise to me. Not in a bad way, just, you know, I I think of Unbeatable Squirrel Girl and and Spider-Man stuff and and Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Like, yeah, I get those for this topic of reading comics to kids. But you brought Captain America number 444 to the table. (laughs) Break it down. And the reason I put this on here is because of my five-year-old. My son, George, his sister is very slow at everything. So often George is in his jammies, he is ready to read. And often we're waiting for another 10 or 15 minutes for Lois to be ready. And so sometimes he and I'll read a whole comic just as we wait for her. And (laughs) one night we were like just waiting for her and he's like, I wanna read Captain America. I said, okay, all right, we we got Marvel Unlimited. You got every character you can imagine on here, right? So I'm like, okay, we can read some Captain America. So I was like, what should we read? What are my favorite Captain America stories? And I could have gone to some Brubaker. I could have gone to Cap Blue or the Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale story. But I went to the, I think the, the story that made me fall in love with Captain America. And that is Mark Wade and Ron Garney's run on Captain America. I love this run so very, very, very much. And so I want to go to the beginning of this one. And this is where we picked it up. And my son loves it. Now, I don't think he gets half of it. I mean, there's <laughs> there's stuff that like you pretty much have to be an adult to understand the depth of it, but they handle it so well. They skirt around it perfectly. And this first issue, you don't even really see Captain America very much. You see him a little bit. And you see someone else wearing his costume, but you get a lot of memories. It's really in the next issue 
where it kicks it off in full force and where you get to see Sharon and Cap and all that kind of stuff. This issue is about like who Captain America is to the rest of the Marvel Universe. And then in 445, you kick off like the real story and you get Captain America who's been brought back to life because he died at the end of Mark Grunewald's run. One of the other most seminal runs, long, long run about Captain America that's incredible in its own way. But you get to this Wade Garney run and he gets brought back to life by blood transfusion from the Red Skull. The, the love of his life, maybe Sharon Carter, who's been thought dead for a long time, returns. She's working with the Red Skull. What? How is that possible? Like all, and it's so crazy. And I swear, I have no idea what George understood or got out of it, but he read every line of Captain America. Like this is while he was still kind of learning. So I would, sometimes I would read it and he'd just repeat after me. Sometimes he would be able to read the whole thing. But he, every night, he's like, can we read more Captain America? And we we read through the whole first part of their run. We're just starting the, when they came back after Heroes Were Born. It's such a delightful book. Again, probably for more older kids than most five-year-olds, but my five-year-old ate it up. Wow. And I love it. George Lowe, seal of approval. <laughs> right there. Um, awesome. Uh, but And there's so much more on Marvel Unlimited. Again, like we're not even talking about the ones that more people like the amount of Darth Vader comics that might because my two year old who certainly doesn't understand much that we're reading. He is one of the biggest Darth Vader fans in the world. So we've read so many inappropriate comics for him uh, <laughs> that I'll just won't read parts of. There's so much on Marvel Unlimited. What a time to be alive, guys. What a time to be alive. <laughs> I have a question for you, Ryan, actually, and I'm just curious to turn the tables a little bit on you. I was wondering if you had a list in your head of like, oh, man, I cannot wait to read this book with my daughter. I can't wait to share this. I can't wait to, to pass this along. So we're in the process of, of uh, we bought a house and we're going to be moving in in the next month. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to building like my office and libraries with all the comics. And I know there are a lot of books that I've kept specifically for Catherine. We have made like smaller collections of, you know, like in size of Ms. Marvel and Runaways. And I have all the Marvel Age and Marvel Adventures books that we did in the early 2000s. And uh, a whole bunch of other titles that I think I want her to be able to to have on a shelf to pull off. But now talking with you, Nick, I'm like, also Marvel Unlimited is going to be such a great thing for her because she can then just get anything she wants. And you could fall down a rabbit hole. I've done that so many times. Like there's a great thing where you could sort of buy character. You could follow creators. You could just go down there. You like they have recommendations, but uh, it's the best. And then the only other thing that I w really want to talk about, again, like, like you know, like you said, we're very lucky to be doing what we're doing. Uh, my daughter Lois, who's seven, she has a job. She is my intern. We don't really have interns right now in this digital age. We're figuring out how to do that in this work from home world. But so she is my intern, and her job is she helps me with balloon placements for Strange Academy. She comes in daily, like. Uh, Daddy has Umberto, and she says it like that. Has Umberto turned in any new pages today? And I'm like, he has, of course, because he's Umberto. Of course, because it's Umberto. He's always working. So she'll sit on my lap and we'll pull out my iPad and she'll do balloon placements with me. <laughs> so she's like, oh, I worked on that issue. She keeps a tally. She vouchers me. So I pay her a quarter per page. Uh, and so, uh, but it's, that's the greatest the thing best, I've ever so. heard. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> it's the best. Oh, gentlemen, this, what a pleasure this was. Uh, so glad to talk to you guys about this. Truly was. Thank, Thank you, Nick. You're the greatest. Thank you, guys. Nick Lowe, one of the best, somebody that means a lot to me as an employee at the old House of Ideas and somebody that I know means a lot to a lot of people uh, is just one of the best editors around. Always a pleasure to talk to him. Indeed. 
Uh, that about wraps it up for us. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, and Mr. Daniel with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio, and Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.